Now it's time to gather around God's Word and, and listen to it. So I invite you to find a Bible if you don't have them, one there with you. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 as we continue our series in Genesis. So uh, find a Bible, grab it, open up to Genesis 11, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 9. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You can be seated as we pray together. Father, wherever we're at listening to this sermon, there are different distractions in our minds. There are different things that our flesh or the devil is using to try and distract us from what you're saying. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would clear those things. We pray together that your Holy Spirit would speak from your word and accomplish your purposes through this passage in our hearts and lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a man evil? Is it the amount of harm he causes others? Cross a certain threshold of injury? and you now count as evil? Is it whether he leverages what he has for the good of others? So fail to use your brains or your brawn or your money to help others, and eventually you slip into that miserly Scrooge-like category of evil. What makes a man evil? The Bible has an interesting answer to that question. It says that what makes us as humans evil is that we reject the one true God's rightful place in our lives. We can do this several ways, but the Bible in Genesis emphasizes that it happens when we attempt to make ourselves equal with God, when we usurp God's place. For example, think back when the serpent came and tempted Eve. He told her that if she ate of the fruit, she would become like God. 
And so Eve eats, and her husband who was with her ate. And this becomes the kind of granddaddy of all the sins. If you go back, what, what was the sin that unleashed all sin upon the world? It was a sin of trying to be like God. Or just a few chapters later in Genesis, you hear about wicked Lamech, Lamech and he boasts that whatever vengeance God could mete out, he could then mete out 11 times worse. If ever there was a I'm equal to God boast, it was that one. When you think about the, the generation just before the pl- flood, Remember, the the sons of God came down and wanted to procreate with them, and they did. And the Bible tells us those were the mighty men of renown of old, their offspring. So when that generation looks and says, who are the mighty ones? Who are the ones of renown? They're the ones who have grasped just a crumb of deity. So, So what is the strand that runs throughout all these stories? What's the common thread? It's humans usurping the place of God. And when humans, consciously or unconsciously, usurp the place of God, it does not end well. Like Icarus with his wax wings flying too close to the sun, our hubris ends in destruction. But no biblical story captures this theme better than the famous Tower of Babel account, which is our story this morning. So as we look into it this morning, may God use it to strip away any tendency in our hearts to usurp God's rightful place. Our story begins with humanity united, the whole earth one. They possess that elusive world peace that seems like the highest good mankind could possibly achieve. Look at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, but this united humanity who shares one Language, more importantly, had one shared purpose. They're united to do something. And that's the key. In verses 3 and 4, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So once they've discovered they can make bricks, they decide to make a name for themselves. They're going to do it by building a city and by building specifically a building, a massive permanent building whose very top would be whose top would be in the very heavens, a testament to their own greatness. Like the old world's fairs or modern skyscrapers, this tower would be a lasting testament to what humans can achieve when they find a way to cooperate. Imagine what we could do if we all just learned to work together. It's a sentiment you hear today. Maybe that was a sentiment then. 
And it wasn't exactly wrong. God's image bearers can do a lot. It's actually how God designed it. It was a good thing. But when those image bearers start using the God-given abilities he's given them to make a name for themselves instead of for God, that's when the trouble begins. And it's something we all do. Certainly the mighty kings and nations of old did it. But if we stop and reflect, we can see ways we are about our own little kingdoms. Sometimes I talk about the Lord's Prayer, which is, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And the reality is, the way most of us pray is actually, may my name, be hallowed. May my kingdom be advanced. My, my will be done. Maybe that's not our formal prayer, but that, that's, that's actually the longing of our heart. And why is it that we instinctually pray that way? My name, my kingdom, my will. It's because we're all born in the line of that granddaddy sin, we're, we're all born as God usurpers. We're not content to allow God to be God. We're not content to be His image bearers, showing the world what kind of goodness He has and His love and His grace and His justice. No. We want to be about our own name and our own kingdom. And so... We need our own image bearers. We need our own monuments to our greatness. Which explains why we can worry with surprising intensity about things like, well, how many friends do I have? Or am I going to get into that particular school? Or how do my spouse's actions reflect on me? Or on Mother's Day, how, how do my kids reflect on me? Or what job do I have? Or what title do I have associated with my position? How does my house look? How does my body look? Because all of those things are monuments to ourselves. They show others how great we are, or they can, if we're thinking wrongly about them. We need these testaments to our own greatness because something within us naturally inverts the Lord's prayer. We think our life is about our own name and our own will and our own kingdom, not God. And that's exactly what the people in Babel were doing. Now, on one level, they're, they're just building a building. Is that so bad? We're talking about what makes man evil, and we're saying, this is it? Building a tall, tall building? I mean, there's no genocide. There's no vicious war. There's no child sacrifices. It's just building a building. For goodness sakes, that's the bad thing. But it's a building with a purpose. They state it. It's to make a name for themselves. And what a name it will be. 
This monument would be so great, it would reach up to the very dwelling of God himself. And they would not be the last ancient people to use buildings to make name for themselves. They wouldn't be the last ancient people to try to gain divinity through their mighty acts. It was actually common in the ancient world that Israel then inhabited. For example, um, the ancient Mesopotamian ruler, I love this, Gudia of Lagash. Gudia of Lagash. He built a temple. A great temple, and it was so great that he had this inscription on it. Archaeologists have found this. It says, on account of the great name that he made for himself by building this building, he was received among the gods into their assembly. That's what he wrote. I became a god by building this. Achieving divinity. It reminds me of a song that Alanis Morissette sang only a decade ago. How about Remembering your divinity, she sang. That's right. You're a goddess. Celebrate you. Your name. Your kingdom. Your will. Like Gudia of Lagash. Like Alanis Morissette. Like the people of Babel can all seem so innocent, so tame. Building a building, pursuing a career, well-behaved children. But make no mistake, if these things are usurping God's place, then they're actually robbing God of his rightful glory. And they're thwarting his purposes for his creation. And it's evil. So I want to say this carefully, but I want to say it clearly. Insofar that we are seeking to make a name for ourselves, we are usurping God, and that is evil. So you are evil. I am evil. Apart from God's work in our lives, apart from the redemption of Christ, we are evil. Now there's two clues in our passage that underscore that this tower building was not some innocent mission. This name for ourselves pursuing was actually meant to usurp God. So first, it says in verse 4 that they wanted to make the tower reach up to the heavens. They wanted its top to be in the heavens. Now, at some level, that's a way of saying, let's reach God. Hey, let's live where God lives. That's cool. But I actually think there's even more going on. I think they're trying to make their tower floodproof. Remember when God destroyed the world with a flood, which would have been just a few generations before them. They certainly would have known the story. It certainly would have had an effect on all of them. It was the, the heavens that opened and poured forth rain. So they're thinking, if that's God's nuclear bomb, his, his great instrument of destruction, let's, let's negate it. If, if we can undo God's great threat to us, 
then we don't have to be under God's thumb anymore. So that's clue number one, that this is an, a, a God-usurping act. They wanted to build this thing up to the heavens. I think it's a deliberate attempt to limit God's power over them. But there's a second clue that this is about resisting God's ways. Because at the end of verse 4, they state their specific reason, they're explicit about it, for, for building this tower. Do you see it there? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That might seem innocent enough. We, we want to stick together. Let's all, let's all build a city and live together here. But think back to God's command to Adam and Eve in chapter 1, verse 28. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then what is the first and main command that God gives Noah and his sons after the flood? In chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So just a few generations prior to Babel, God Almighty had given a clear command, one that certainly would have been passed down to these people, to fill the earth. And now they're building a tower for the explicit purpose of not being dispersed over the face of all the earth. This is defiance against God. Get the tower up to his heavens. Make it high enough that the, his floods can't touch us. And do it so that we'll stay united, not filling the earth as he had intended. I think the reality here that we can see is that man cannot try and make a name for himself without usurping God's rightful place. And such actions are the heart of evil. So verses 1 to 4, we've seen this, this act that these people have done in uniting to build this tower. But what is God's assessment of that? And that's what we see in verses 5 to 9. That's what's important to see. right? If you're just reading 1 through 4 by itself, without contact, you might think it's not such a big deal. What is God's assessment of it? Now, I've already tipped my hand here. But let's look to see how God assesses it. What, what does God make of mankind and all his strivings? What does, how does God assess this mighty endeavor, this tall tower? Verse 5 is just great. Do you see it? And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. In order to see this mighty tower, God has to come down. He has to stoop over and kind of get down on his hands. And the, oh, oh, there it is. Now I see it. Y yes, nice tower, my image bearers. It doesn't call them his image bearers, though, does it? He actually, in verse 5, calls them the children of mankind. Good work on your Lego tower, kids. You're trying to do this mighty thing, and God's so much bigger. It reminds me, actually, of, of the biggest hole that man has ever dug. Kids, this is an interesting one. I don't know if you've ever tried to dig a hole to China or something like that, but there is a really, really deep hole. It's called the Kola Super Deep, super deep Borehead. Isn't that cool, kids? The Kola Super Deep Borehead. It actually was built starting in the 1970s. There was a Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. The Soviets were trying to show how powerful they are. And so 
you know, they take all this ingenuity, all their best scientists, which, you know, same, same type of thing that was able to put a man into space, and, and they concentrate on trying to dig the deepest hole possible. And they spent 20 years trying to dig the deepest hole possible. It is the, it's the deepest hole on earth. And guess what? It only makes it halfway through the earth's mantle, the outer crust of the earth. I mean, let me, let me uh, just describe if, if the earth were an orange, they've only made it halfway through the skin of the orange. That's our deepest hole. I mean, do you see the gross disproportion between man's greatest efforts and the power of God? Whether it's the Tower of Babel or the Kola Superdeep Borehole, borehole it's Borehead, sorry, it's the same. But even as this verse 5 highlights just how pathetic our efforts are, God still knows the power of mankind because he has endowed them with traits that are unique as his image bearers. He did so because he wanted us to be united in great tasks like harnessing this earth for his glory, like building his kingdom, like cultivating beauty and and showing love and kindness. But he knows that these image-bearing traits pose risk when they are leveraged against God and his purposes. And so he says at the end of verse 6, you see it, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now when I think of Psalm 2 with the nations counseling together against the Lord and his anointed, and, and, and it says God holds them in derision, I think there's a little bit of irony in this statement. Like, oh, there's nothing that you couldn't do after they build their little pathetic tower. But, but in this statement, there are also, and importantly, echoes of chapter 3, verse 22, when God had said after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that they needed to be curtailed because in some ways they had become God-like. Sure, these humans in their best efforts, even united, are never going to be rivals to God. But the destructive power of what image bearers can do when they're united with one language and one purpose, oh, it can be so awful. We all have no sense of that because God does put in places, to li- put in places things to limit that. But, but one day, when God does remove all of his goodness and all of his regulators, all of his protections... Well, that's what hell will be. And it's at that point we'll see just how dark things can become when we're united, but with ourselves and our own name at the top. So God sees the kind of devastation that could possibly happen if mankind is united, that nothing will stop them. And so he says, I'm going to do something to stop them. I'm going to put a regulator on them. You know those, those uh, trucks that you get from U-Haul? I'm not used to driving a big truck. I don't know how much momentum or how, how top-heavy they are or how hard it is to, to stop. And so I can get going way too fast. And so U-Haul's like, I'm going to just protect this guy from his own damage by putting a regulator on it where you can only go so fast. So he won't do anything stupid. 
They know what they're doing. And God puts a regulator on these people. He's going to confuse their languages. But, but he says in verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. And they're confused their language. An interesting language. Come, let us. Do you remember back when we heard that in Genesis 1? Come, let us make man in our own image. And we've gone from that all the way down to come let us limit the kind of damage they can do in chapter 11. It has been a dark and sad descent. And these two come let us reveal just how far we've fallen in our relationship with God Almighty. And so God does come down, and in an instant, he shows them how futile it is to box with God. One people united with one language to make a great name for themselves in defiance of God, refusing to disperse, and in a moment, they're cast into utter confusion. It's just comical when you think about it, like, Hey, Joey, pass me that rope. Except for Joey can't understand what Bill's saying. And so he's like, Bill, I can't understand a word you're saying. What are you talking about, man? And Bill gets upset because he can't understand what Joey's saying. And pretty soon they're arguing. And these little arguments are taking place all over the scene just in an instant. Nobody can talk to one another. They're getting angry with one another. So they start, oh, I know what you're saying. I can understand you. And they get together. Maybe they're having little uh, fights break out. Oh, these people speak together. And pretty soon they're like, we're out of here. And they all go with their own groups. It is a comical scene. And it all happens in an instant from building a city and a tower to that. And that is often how God works. He has a way of doing that. You think about in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar standing in front of his, his great city and boasting about how great he is because he's built this mighty city. And God's like, oh yeah? And he just takes away his sanity for a moment. And his fingers curl. And a beast-like paws. And he hunches over and starts going about like a beast. He's eating, eating grass. He's completely humiliated in just a moment. Until he acknowledges God's greatness and he's restored. Or you think of Acts 12 and uh, Herod Agrippa. Right? He stands before his... his, uh, his um, citizens and and they're just praising him you're like a, you are a god you are a god they say and he believes the press he thinks i am amazing and an instant god strikes him down and causes worms to start to eat him alive until he breathes his last that is often how god works he gives us something very clear boom to just expose the facade of how great we think we are. It's not always as dramatic as what happened at Babel or at Nebuchadnezzar or Herod Agrippa. Sometimes it's just a kid we can't control. Our marriage relationship we can't hold together. Or business failing. But God doesn't want us to believe that we're great. And I think he regularly sends us things to help us see clearly how powerless we are.
It was the Christian songwriter Rich Mullins who wrote, We must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. And he's right. So as morally neutral as building a building might seem or pursuing our career or having as many friends as possible, as morally neutral as those things could seem. When they're done to build a name for ourselves, God's assessment of this kind of name building is very clear. It is evil. It must be stopped because it has devastating consequences. That's verses 5 to 9. Now, good storytelling always has beautiful symmetry to it, right? Things come full circle. There's a sense of wholeness, completion. And our little story has some beautiful symmetry. So look at how it begins. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Verse 4. Verse 9 ends, therefore its name is called Babel, because there Yahweh confused their language of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So one language in one place, many languages spread out. Beautiful symmetry conveying the power of God. But there's actually another bigger symmetry one that goes beyond our passage that actually spans to the whole Bible. Because the Bible begins here in Genesis 11 with a story about mankind who had one language and that language was divided and they were separated from one another. But look at how the Bible ends. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. <coughs> Last book in the Bible, Revelation Look at how it ends. Chapter 5, verses 19, or verses 9 and 10. Now here, there's a scene with Jesus who's pictured as a lamb. And there's this scroll that basically is going to tell the story of God's ultimate defeat of his enemies and establishing his perfect kingdom. But no one can open the scroll, but Jesus can. And here's why. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals... For you were slain, Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, one kingdom, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God ransoming people from every nation to make them one kingdom. Look, look at just go ahead to chapter 7. So you had 5, 9, and 10. Now look at 7, 9, and 10 in Revelation. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is beautiful. Symmetry. 
the many people are now brought together, united. It's not that God didn't want us united. To the contrary, Jesus died to destroy the hostility that exists between us. To make out of the many peoples and cultures one new nation. But the difference is that here in Christ, we are united around the original purpose to which God gave us. The picture in Revelation 7 is not of a people united singing, Hallelujah, salvation belongs to me. Aren't I great? Humans, yay! No, it's salvation to God. God who is on the throne. Because they know they are this one nation because the Lamb who was slain to ransom them. That's the picture. And it's a beautiful picture. United and singing out the greatness of God and saving us. Speaking of symmetry, I'll give it a try. I started with I started the sermon with the question, what makes a man evil? So we'll end there. It's not simply about how we treat our fellow man. That's important. It's actually about usurping God. Pursuing my name, my will, my kingdom instead of his. Because actions like this, even though they might seem like morally neutral or innocent enough actions, are actually what unravel the very fibers of the world God's made and undercut his purposes. It's so destructive. We don't see how dark it could be, but one day hell will reveal it. And all of us are, in small ways and or big ways, tower builders like Babel, trying to make a name for ourselves. And it's evil. Do you see that? You might think you're good. You might seem like your actions are noble. But who are you trying to make great? Are you allowing God his rightful place? We're evil. Which is why it's such good news that Jesus came to ransom a people for himself from all tribes and tongues and languages and nations. Because we needed to be ransomed. Our penalty for that usurping of God had to be paid. God's wrath had to be satisfied. And Jesus did that. And when he did that, he made a way for anyone who turned to him, for anyone who turns to him, to be restored to our original purpose as his image bearers so that we can be united in one new people, telling out the greatness of our God and reflecting his goodness to this world. Many languages, many cultures, all singing the greatness of our God. That is a beautiful symmetry from Babel to Revelation. Beautiful truth. So let me close by asking you, where are you in this? What name are you trying to make great? 
what building are you building? Let's pray. God, for those who are hearing this, I pray that, that, that for those who are hearing this, who, who, who you want to see, you want them to see that, that, that they have been building a name for themselves. They might think they're Christians or they may know they're not, but you're using this sermon to expose to them that they are far from you. I pray that you would do that, that they would have open eyes to see that they are evil. We are evil, that they need you and that they would run to Jesus and find the life and purpose and forgiveness that he offers. And for others who are hearing this sermon and have new hearts and really do seek your kingdom and your, your name to be hallowed, but can see in the remnants of our own flesh ways that we actually are still trying to make a name for ourselves, I pray that you would expose that and cause us to repent of that dangerous path it is. Lord, in a moment we're going to sing about how much we need you. And Lord, we do. Thank you for the lamb that was slain to restore us. We need you so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.